0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Caroline DeCosta trained as a doctor in Dublin, delivering babies and eventually having seven of her own. Caroline also had a notable stint as a smuggler of contraceptive devices into the Republic of Ireland. After Caroline and her family returned home to Australia, she went on to become a professor of obstetrics and gynaecology the first woman in this country to do so. Her new book tells stories from her five decades as a doctor and reveals her own quite extraordinary life. It's called The Women's Doc. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Did you always want to be a Dr Caroline? Was it a dream of yours growing up?
0: Uh, No, it wasn't really. I started medicine in Sydney University in 1964. Because I, was, I was 16. I had 16. finished... Yes. Well, there were only five years of high school at that time. I guess there was less knowledge around, but it was, cons- <laughs> <laughs> it was considered uh, reasonable to start at 16. I turned 17 during that year. But I went into medicine because people said it was good a good idea. I had the marks. I just wasn't sure that I wanted to be a doctor at that stage. And once I got to the university, I became even less sure... And by the end of the year, I decided I wanted to drop, not drop out of medicine so much as postpone my tertiary education. And went off on a big adventure travelling overseas. Where did
1: you first find work in Sydney to help save up for this big trip?
0: Uh, Well, I began by working on the buses. There were double-decker buses then and they went out to Watson's Bay and those are the ones I was put on. I worked as a conductress and I had a navy blue uniform and a box of tickets and (laughs) I went up and down the back stairs. There were no electronically controlled doors or anything. I never fell off. Uh, and it was um, back and forth to, from Circular Quay to Watson's Bay. It was well well paid, but it was going to take me a long time to race <laughs> it there to Europe. Well, how did you get the idea to get a job on a boat? Well, I was in a pub, and you will realise that I was underage, but uh, that was the 60s, uh, and I met a young man who had come off a boat, uh, a New Zealander. He was on shore leave. He was working on a Swedish ship, which was in Walsh Bay, he was wanting to travel to Europe too. In fact, he was on his way. Uh, and he said, look, you can, you can get a job on a ship too. What you need to do is go look at the shipping news in the Sydney Morning Herald each day and see what ships are in and you can tell where they're going. And you go down where they're berthed and you climb up the gangplank and you ask for the captain and you see if he wants any crew and you would be employed washing dishes and things as a, as a mess escort if they want crew. So this seemed like a great idea. I did climb up many game tanks (laughs) before I actually did get a job on a Swedish ship, the Crystal Sea. What was your job on board this Swedish ship? Oh, well, washing the dishes, cleaning. I was the mess girl for the officer's mess, So I served the Swedish food to them. They had Swedish food. What was that, uh, Caroline? Oh, it was pretty stodgy, pretty stodgy. A lot of potatoes and roast meat special kinds of fruit soup and things like that. They liked to eat Swedish food, even though they were far from Sweden.
1: And what kind of atmosphere was it on board?
0: Well, it was very, it was very regulated. Everybody had their job. It was very ship-shape uh, and <laughs> worked very well. Uh, it was very clean. It was Swedish, of course. It had to be very clean. I had to learn how to clean more than I had learnt in my life up to that point. Uh, Because the captain used to go around on Saturdays. There was big cleaning on Saturday mornings. And he would come around and he'd inspect the most obscure places looking for dust. And if he found any, you would have to do the whole thing all over again on the Saturday (laughs) afternoon. So pretty quickly, I learned how to be very organised. Which ports did you stop at on the way to Europe? Well, the ship itself was taking, it was a refrigerated freighter. Uh, So it went, first of all, to Montreal and discharged the the meat to Canada, and then went down the South American coast to, first of all, to Brazil, and then to Uruguay, and then to Argentina, picking up, first we took bananas from Sao Paulo to the Uruguayans, and then we took more refrigerated meat back to Europe. And so the ship plied back and forth across the Atlantic. And could you get off at these exotic locales as a teenager? Oh, absolutely. You had shore leave because the ship would dock for several days and freight would have to be loaded. This was long before there were containers. So that was quite a lot of work and there would be three or four days and you'll be able to take and shore leave you, what did
1: you get up to when you were
0: shore leave? Well, I was quite um, surveilled by the captain still when I went on shore leave. There was always a male officer or petty officer who was in charge of me. Most of the men, I have to say, visited brothels uh, or places of ill repute. So that, that cliche is true, is it? The sailors would rush to the brothels. Uh, it was pretty true, I think. So I would sit in the front parlour of some of these places and chat to women who were not occupied at the time. Goodness
1: me, that must have been a very different world from the Sydney you'd grown up in.
0: It it was, uh, but uh, I met some lovely people. And we also, the, the crew were interested in seeing, when uh, we'd, looked around Sao Paulo. I remember going up a funicular to look at the town and we went to beaches and the company, which was quite a large company, would organise things like barbecues for the crew on shore. Uh, So there was quite a lot of activity and it was quite social actually on on the boat too. There were films, there were card nights, there were things like that. And you didn't fall in love with a Swedish sailor on the way over? I didn't fall in love, no, but... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, mm, Um, let's not. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's volume two, is
0: it? (laughs) Yes, yes, that's volume two. Where did you end up leaving the ship? Uh, In Greece. I could only leave the ship in a port where they could supply another mescal. And by then I was ready to be in Europe. Uh, So that had taken me quite a long time, from middle of 1965 to early in 1966. So I paid off in Piraeus and then I got on a train. Up till that point, I thought London was the centre of the world, but the train stopped in Paris and I got out and looked around and realised that Paris was a good contender for the (laughs) centre of the world too.
1: After some time in Paris, you you travelled to the Middle East. Where did you end up living there?
0: There was what was called the Hippie Trail at that time and it went from Europe right through Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, Bulgaria... Turkey, particularly Istanbul, Uh, and then down through Lebanon. Lebanon was a a safe country. The civil war hadn't arrived. Then I went through Syria and into Jordan, and I ended up in Jerusalem. Uh, And I stayed there for quite a number of months. I loved the old city, and I got a job uh, in a restaurant and travelled around to lots of parts of Jordan, Petra. And I also did some volunteer work in uh, refugee camps for Palestinians, by then, I had decided that I did want to do medicine. That, I would try and get back into medical school. I didn't really fancy coming back to Australia at that point, though. And I then met in the German girl's youth hostel in Jerusalem, a, an English girl who was at Trinity College in Dublin. And she said, you could go to medical school in Ireland. You could go to Trinity. So I wrote to, the, uh, to Trinity College And they asked me to come for an interview. I didn't get the letter for some months. And by the time I actually got the letter, uh, I had passed the date on which I should have turned up for an interview. So being in Jerusalem was was a fair way from Dublin. But I thought, I'll go and see them. I'll just pop over. I'll pop into Dublin. (laughs) It took a while. I had to go back (laughs) along that route and across the English Channel. There was no tunnel then. Across the Irish Sea, there's no tunnel there. And got to Trinity and was told, no, you can't come this coming year, but um, we can take you the following year, which was not part of my plan. And then they told me, kind of just by the by, oh, there are a couple of other medical schools. They took me to the window and showed me the main street of Dublin, Grafton Street. Go up to the top of Grafton Street, and on the left across the park, there's University College. It's Catholic. Now, that didn't mean much to me then. And then the woman who was talking to me, who was very kindly, said, oh, on the right, there's another medical school, the College of Surgeons. We don't know anything about them. (laughs) (laughs) So this was confusing. But anyway, I followed the directions, went up Grafton Street. There was a a light rain falling. It was a March day in Dublin, cool, wet. Uh, And at the top, I thought left, right, left, right. And then I saw the building of the College of Surgeons very imposing, but a lovely man wearing a cutaway coat and a top hat was running the the entry into this building and he asked me if I wanted to be a medical student there. So I said, I guess I do. And I found myself in the registrar's office. Sounds like something (laughs) out of a fairy story, Caroline, like some messenger from your future life was there to open the door for you. Absolutely. Uh, Yes, that was Mr Cooper. He was there throughout my medical school days. (laughs) How did Dublin suit you as a place to live? It was wonderful. It was a great place to be a student. There were many other institutions besides the College of Surgeons and the two other medical schools. So there were lots of students living in the centre of Dublin. There were many uh, convivial pubs. (laughs) There were were lots of activities uh, going on and it wasn't terribly expensive at that time. Ireland was a a relatively poor country at that time. This was before the uh, European Union and the the common market.
1: Tell me about the the shop next to your share house. What kind of things did it sell for a student to Ah
0: yes. Well, I found a a share house with mostly students. Um, There were four of us. Uh, It was a two up, two down, as many, many Dublin houses were. And there were three houses together. We were at number three, Hatch Place. And leaning against the side of our house was what you would call a shed, but it was the forerunner of the convenience store. And there were two middle-aged Dublin sisters who sat in there, from early in the morning until quite late at night. Selling, they would sell you one egg or three pieces of bread, a pat of butter, uh, just what you needed for your supper and you had two and sixpence for. Um, A couple of woodbines if you were a smoker, a few briquettes if you were going to try and light the fire, and a lot of gossip.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There weren't many women studying medicine in the 1960s. What kind of rules were you subject to, particularly around what you wore?
0: Yes. Well, it was skirts only when I started at the College of Surgeons. Unfortunately, I hadn't realised that, and I turned up the first day wearing this rather neat pantsuit that I was pretty keen on, and I was stopped at the front door by a very wild-looking man wearing an academic gown over his suit. This turned out to be Dr Gallen, who ruled with an iron ruler what these students did, and he said, Miss, you can't come in here like that Go home and put on a decent skirt. So I only had one skirt, I think, so <laughs> I had to go and put it on. I had to wear it for quite a long time till I could afford another one. Well, this was the beginning of October 1967, but by January of the following year, the miniskirt had reached Ireland. So uh, every woman in surgeons, which was what we called the, the college, acquired a miniskirt and we walked in and Gallon was Dr Gallan was standing there, ''Where's your skirt, miss?'' Oh, Dr. Gallen, I'm wearing it. You know. And he's almost too shocked to look at your thighs. <laughs> no, I'm really wearing a skirt. There's nothing else in the shops, Dr. Gallen. So after a while, they relaxed the rules and we could wear trousers, which in the Irish climate was a good thing.
1: <laughs> Tell me, uh, Caroline, why young men would turn up to your place on a Sunday morning.
0: I had been brought up in a completely non-religious uh Uh, household. And I really knew nothing about the differences and the conflict uh, between Catholics and Protestants. So the first Sunday I was staying in the Hatch Place house, about 10 o'clock, a lot of young men, students turned up and they were welcomed. We always welcome people. And they had cups of tea and there was a lot of chat and so on. And then kind of en masse, there were about eight of them, at 11 o'clock, they left And I have a dear friend, Fanula, who was there. She was studying arts. And I said, what's going on? And she said, oh, they all live at home. uh, And their mothers tell them to go off to mass and they can go to the local church here. But when they get home, they'll be asked what the sermon was about. Their parents will have gone to early mass. And so they send one person, one of them, one a week, to go and listen to the sermon and then tell them what it was about and then they can go home and tell their parents. <laughs> <laughs> that was when I understood the beginning of my understanding of the hold the Catholic Church had over the Irish population. How were you treated by the, the male medical students? Oh, very, very well. There was great collegiality, great friendships. We were all in it together. We, we still are in contact many, many years later. It was like being... In the trenches, but without the mud and bullets. <laughs> oh, <laughs> More <laughs> Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> yes. were, the,
1: were the male and female students allowed to fraternise with one another, allowed to sit
0: next to one another in class? In class, to start with, all the women sat at the front and we had numbers. Uh, but after two years, we were allowed, we were dispersed alphabetically through the room. There were about 120 students, I think, and about 12 or 15 women. So we we were dispersed alphabetically. And what then happened was that, um, you know, you're sitting next to some bloke whose name begins in the same bit of the alphabet as as yours. There were liaisons between these people, you know, and... um, even some marriages, in, including, <laughs> including my own. Yes. But there were also other liaisons which did not lead to marriage. <laughs> all, all
1: brought together by that wonderful dating app, which is the alphabet. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Tell mm. me, Caroline, what changed in your life in your second year as a med student?
0: Yes, well, it changed really in my first year because I became pregnant with an unintended pregnancy. Uh, which I continued with were, were you in a relationship with the father? no, I was not really no i wasn 't, uh, but I decided that I was going to continue with the pregnancy, and I had my first son in one thousand nine hundred and sixty eight
1: was that a hard decision to come to as a as a single woman in the 1960s in Dublin just starting out on their on their medical degree? was it a, a
0: hard decision it wasn 't a hard decision to know that what I wanted to do was to continue with the pregnancy and also continue with studying medicine. What I had to do was make plans to deal with it and work out what the problems were going to be. I was also kind of young and quite naive, um, or not perhaps naive, but innocent that anything could go wrong. Uh, I just took it I guess one step at a time, thinking about how am I going to do this. How did the professors at at medical school respond to your pregnancy well there were We were taught by a number of women in our first years, and they were supportive. We also had some male professors, and one particularly. I disappeared for a week. I had a medical certificate which said I was legitimately occupied giving birth <laughs> <laughs> But we had a card signing system every Friday, and we had to do a bit of anatomy, like the top of the thigh and working down the legs and then the arms and so on over the two years that we did anatomy. And we had a professor, Rooney, examining us, and he was a very particular kind of man who didn't give much of him, of his personal self, away, uh, and I missed one card signing, and then I turned up the following week no longer pregnant. I'd been nine months pregnant the previous time he'd seen me, and then I turned up obviously not pregnant anymore.
1: And this man is a medical doctor, so he should oh, be yes. able to He's gather what had happened.
0: I think, <laughs> I think so, yes. And he didn't look at me at all, he, and I didn't do so well because I'd had to kind of stuff the knowledge into my head without really having looked at the cadaver we were using. But I passed the card signing, and he said, Miss, you'll have to make more effort if you want to achieve your potential, or words to this effect. So I said, yes, Professor Rooney, I I will try.
1: (laughs) So did you only take a week off, Caroline, after having baby Jerome?
0: I did. It was then Christmas, so I had a couple of weeks, three weeks altogether.
1: What was the tradition in Dublin maternity hospitals back then when it came time for a woman and her baby to leave?
0: Well, labour could be very long, and in fact, my case, in my case, it was. I went into the hospital on Wednesday, and didn't give birth to Jerome until the Saturday, because there was not the management of labour that subsequently was introduced—the use of the the drug Syntocin on to progress labour. So it could be very exhausting for a woman, and then subsequently there were some days of what was called lying in, and midwives would look after. The babies, particularly at night, they'd bring them for breastfeeding if if the baby was being breastfed. They would instruct you in various bits of uh, baby care and accompany you to the front door and hand over the baby, well wrapped up because it was uh, winter in Ireland on that occasion. And I remember being told by the midwife who took me down that I would make a good mother for my, my child. And it was incredibly comforting and reassuring to me in the subsequent weeks. And I really fell in love with midwives at that point, I think. (laughs) And I have always
1: uh, got on well with midwives. Who looked after your baby son when you did go back to study?
0: I found a very lovely woman who had already four children who minded him till he was six weeks old. And then I found a nursery run by a woman. Uh, She was a widow, Uh, In her own home, she had a number of children of different ages and she had helpers, and I was able to leave him feeling confident about his care with her for a number of hours each Mm. day. I didn't have a car. I had to walk to where this was, pushing him in his pram and then his pushchair in the morning. But it it worked very well. How did you
1: handle the, the prejudices against single mothers or unmarried mothers, as they were called at the time? I mean, I can't imagine there were, there were many places in the world that had more prejudice against single
0: mums than Ireland in the 1960s. No, there was, a, there was a huge stigma attached to unmarried motherhood to the point that most young Irish women who became pregnant either had a very quick marriage Or they went into the care of the Catholic Church and they were often put into mother and baby homes, which were really terrible places. They had to work, particularly doing laundry for the Catholic Church. And uh, when they had their baby, the baby was taken away immediately and uh, put out for adoption. There was a lot of adoption in Ireland up until the end of the 1980s, really. It, it was very frowned upon, and families would do anything to hide the fact that their daughter had become pregnant, out of wedlock, inverted commas. But my family was in Australia. They were supportive. I was not Catholic. I did not feel this stigma myself, and I lived in a, in a separate kind of community with the students I knew and the Irish people that I met. So I did not have to encounter the prejudice too often. I, if I had to interface with the health system or uh, you know, certain other people, uh, yes, but I just felt able to, to point out that I was hopefully doing a good job at bringing up my child.
1: How hard was it to get birth control in Ireland in the 1960s?
0: It was totally illegal. It was impossible, particularly for people who didn't really have the contacts and who lived perhaps out of Dublin. It was against the law to have any kind of contraception. Now, Northern Ireland was part of the United Kingdom and it was possible to get condoms there. But for many people, these were not accessible and it was a sin to use contraception. Where did your fellow medical students source condoms? Yes, so there were quite a lot of Norwegian medical students and they were pretty cashed up because the Norwegian government gave them very good grants. So they would go home to Norway in the holidays, and they come back with lots of condoms, different colours. And so there was a very brisk trade in condoms (laughs) with the Norwegians.
1: (laughs) And and tell me about your own uh, experience smuggling. What were you involved in? Yeah.
0: Well, the doctor who looked after me when I had my own baby, Jerome, he was wonderful, Rory O'Hanlon, and he would not take a fee, but he said to me, when you go, you go across to England sometimes. And I said, yes, we used to get the train on Friday evenings and get the the night ferry across to England and go to swinging London. Could you bring back, I'll, I'll write a prescription for you for some intrauterine devices that I can then use for women here. Would you bring them back for me? Because if I'm caught, I would be, I would be deregistered and I would be prosecuted, but you're a medical student, you, they, they would just take them off you. So I said, certainly. So I did it about 20 times, I think, and each time I brought about 20 in and I was never caught.
1: Tell me about the train trip you took to Belfast in 1971.
0: Yes. The Women's Liberation Movement was very keen on getting contraception for Irish women. We did things a bit at a time. The idea that there would one day be abortion in Ireland Mm. was unthinkable. Uh, But contraception seemed like it might be possible. Now, it was possible to get, as I've said, condoms in Northern Ireland so one day in 1971, 47 of us got on the train in Dublin and went across the border into Northern Ireland to Belfast and we bought condoms. We had hoped to get the pill, but we didn't have a prescription. So we bought aspirin and Panadol and things, and we thought the Irish customs officers, who we had to pass through, we had to pass through customs when we got back to the Dublin station they wouldn't know the difference. And, of course, you were wanting attention. You were wanting to be We were stopped. definitely wanting attention, yes. So we publicised this uh, and we came back on the train and there were groups of women on the stations we passed through who were shouting in support for us. And we arrived back uh, in Dublin and we were kind of corralled by the customs officers. We had been nervous, but they were much more nervous. and they were pink with embarrassment apart from anything else many of them apparently had never actually seen a condom so they didn't know what they were looking for so I was asked you know miss have you got any of them things Uh, and I said yes I have and I threw some of them down we we didn't intend to show them everything we had, uh, we're going to take some of it back. Uh, so they, they really didn't know what to do. And eventually we were let go. They took our names and remonstrated with us and so on. But the press were there taking photos from all directions. So it was a, it was a good day. It was a fun day. But I think it was the beginning of the development of the Family Planning Association in Ireland. Well, I know it was. And the idea that contraception, should be available to to Irish people, uh, began then in 1971. And, of course, now Irish society is completely transformed. What phone call did you get in 2015 about that train trip? Yes, yeah. I got a phone call from a lovely woman, a theatre director in Dublin, and she said, we've made a musical about the train, the contraceptive train. And I I couldn't stop laughing. (laughs) I thought it was hilarious. I had forgotten about the train. And she said, it's premiering in Limerick in September of 2015 and we'd like to invite you. So naturally I went along and uh, it's it's fantastic. It was done by the people who did Riverdance. It's got a lot of very good numbers in it. And then I went with my friends again in Dublin. Uh, the run had to be extended. For many weeks it was very popular in Ireland, which was great because there were lots of young people who had no idea that there had once been no contraception in Ireland. Broadcast Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. the next after you'd finished your medical degree in Dublin? Well I finished the medical studies and became a doctor in Ireland and by then I was married. My husband had sat next to me during medical school. where well, Our names began with D <laughs> and uh, we went to Papua New Guinea for our internship and then we came back to Australia and we were in Sydney and we did various exams to get into training myself for obstetrics and uh, him for for surgery, and we had passed these exams, so we thought we would be able to be impl- employed as registrars in Australia. But when I went to talk to a certain professor in Sydney about this, I was told we don't train women in obstetrics in Sydney. We just we just don't do it. You know, I didn't even get to sit down. I was just shown the door. So we went back to Ireland, and I was welcomed back in Ireland. I had done quite well as a student, and I got into training in Ireland. There were very few women doing obstetrics in Ireland, but I was very much supported throughout my training.
1: An important part of that training was how to handle breech births. What is a breech birth, Carolyn, and why does
0: it make doctors worried? A breech birth occurs when the baby is coming out with either the buttocks or the legs or the feet first rather than the head. Most births, most babies will, what we call, present with the head first, but breeches occur in about 4% of pregnancies. And when the head is presenting, first of all, there are contractions of the uterus, the worm, over a period of time, and this gradually alters the shape of the head. The head of a newborn baby is quite pliable because there are bones that can slide under each other, and there are fontanelles which are still... Quite uh, allow quite a lot of mobility. So the baby's head is gradually squeezed, which sounds terrible, but is in fact perfectly okay.
1: More terrible for the mother.
0: Well, <laughs> uh, 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 that's absolutely right. Yes. Yeah. But over a period of time, the baby's head fits safely through the mother's pelvis and then the rest of the baby follows. But with a breach, the contractions start and they push the baby down. And what comes first are the buttocks and the legs and so on, which are quite squashy and come out quite easily, followed by the trunk, which often comes out quite easily too, and then the arms, which can sometimes be behind the head so they can hold things up. But then the head itself will come out, and, of course, it hasn't had the opportunity to do this being squashed, moulding, it's called. If it fits easily, that's fine. If it doesn't fit easily... By then, you've got the baby with the umbilical cord compressed so the baby's not getting any oxygen-aided blood from the mother and also the baby can't breathe. Mm. So you've got about four to five minutes to deliver the head safely. You don't want to squash the head very summarily and quickly because that will damage the baby's brain. Goodness, Uh, what a mm, high-pressure time, four to five Mm -hmm. minutes. It was seeing a breech birth... As a medical student, on the first day that I was actually on the labour ward, that made me think, oh, that was fantastic. Uh, That's what I want to do. I want to be an obstetrician and I want to be able to do breech births. Why did you think fantastic rather than how terrifying I'm going to run the other way? Because there was so much skill involved and the woman was in labour and she'd been in labour before and she was following the instructions but she was also in a lot of pain and calling on the Virgin Mary to assist her. But with the skills of the obstetrician, the head was put into the right position. First of all, the arms were stuck, so he very calmly telling us what he was doing. He brought the arms down, one after the other, turning the baby a little, and then he used forceps to carefully deliver the head. And the woman had her first daughter after three boys, and she was absolutely ecstatic. The forceps that are used in deliveries like that, what do they look like? Well, they look like big salad servers, but they've got a piece out of the spoon part and I actually have a pair which I use for serving salad. You to, do not. Yeah, I, I do but you have to get, <laughs> you have to have large lettuce leaves and not little bits of <laughs> cucumber and tomato that fall through the gaps. <laughs> and I just trust that they've been fully sterilised before
1: you've put them in your kitchen drawer, oh, Caroline.
0: Absolutely, <laughs> yes, and through, through the dishwasher, yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Ultrasounds. yes. Uh, ultrasounds are such a significant part of pregnancies now. Were they in use when you started as an obstetrician? No,
0: not when I started, which was 1972. Uh, there was no ultrasound. And when I mention this to medical students I've been teaching in recent years, they're absolutely astounded because we use ultrasound all the time. It was a matter of palpating the woman's abdomen and listening to the fetal heart and really nothing else. It was clinical judgment. There were some tests. There were blood tests you could do on the mother's blood. You could test the mother's urine. But none of that gave you much information about how the baby was developing. Uh, and it took many years. The first thing that we were able to see with ultrasound was where the placenta was growing, plus the, where the heart was, and then gradually to measure the size of the fetus, the developing baby. Now there is the most sophisticated 3D ultrasound picture uh, of this developing baby, and many, many medical procedures can be done on the baby. You know, There's a huge amount of information that can be got well before the baby's born, and often treatments can be done using ultrasound. It's incredible, the change that ultrasound has brought to obstetrics.
1: What about pregnancy tests? How were they done back in the 60s? Yeah,
0: well, uh, the pregnancy test that I had to diagnose pregnancy for me in 19, early 1968 uh, was done with a frog. <laughs> what? <laughs> Small animals were used. This, this was developed over the into war years, uh, first of all, with mice, and then with rabbits, then frogs. And it depends on the hormone which women produce when they're pregnant, uh, the gonadotrophin hormone. It has certain effects on the ovaries or the testicles of, of frogs or of the other animals that were used. And you can have a look at these animals this so you expose more, a woman's yes,
1: urine to yes, these animals to right, see if there yes, are changes right. in their sex organs. That's, that's right, exactly. So that is
0: astonishing. Yes, yeah. And as you say, required a lot of animals. Well, it did initially um, because the, the rabbits had to be killed and their ovaries inspected. Whereas with the frogs, you got an answer much more quickly. And Cairns actually became the centre of this diagnostic pregnancy industry in the 1960s because, as you may have heard, we have a lot of, or we had a lot of cane toads. (laughs) And the biochemists from Cairns Hospital called upon the children of Cairns to bring in cane toads, (laughs) live cane toads. The squashed ones from the roads weren't any good. Bring in cane toads, and first of all, they were paying sixpence a cane toad, but I think the children rebelled and they got a shilling. (laughs) (laughs) and then these were used in pregnancy tests they were used in pregnancy tests in cans but also they were packed up every evening into a box they were well fed these toads and sent off all over australia you know the results were that there were cane toads all over australia
1: you you mentioned caroline that you'd married another medical student in dublin and with him went on to have another six children how did the yes. midwives at the the hospital in dublin help out with your kids When you were, when they were little, and you were
0: on duty, Uh, they were wonderful. And uh, what they did is not something that could be replicated today, because there are a lot more women working in obstetrics and gynaecology, and things are much more formalised. But there were—I had a proper arrangements for my children. But there were nights when we were both, my husband and I, were on call, and I would have one of my children in the hospital. And then midwives would look after that child while I, while I was perhaps doing a cesarean section, or a forceps delivery, or seeing a patient, and so on. And there was well, there was a hospital ambulance, and the house officer, if they didn't have a car, it was the re, the job of the house officer to take the child for me to the childcare because I had to work straight away the next morning. <laughs> In the ambulance. <laughs> In the ambulance, yes. <laughs> the ambulance was, was used for, sometimes for non-medical <laughs> activities. That must uh, in, have been pretty exciting for your, for your kids if they were old enough to be aware of their transport. Yes, the older ones had been in uh, hospital ambulances before. Uh, they'd been picked up from kindergarten, things like that. <laughs> this is quite a while ago. It doesn't happen.
1: Doesn't happen anymore. Oh. Tell me, Caroline, what, uh, what you were doing while you were in labour with your fourth child.
0: Oh, yes. I I was performing a forceps delivery for another woman. Um, So you knew you were in uh, labour
1: and you still were delivering with forceps?
0: Yes. Well, I wasn't wasn't expecting him for another 10 days or so. And it was Boxing Day, the evening of Boxing Day. Uh, And I realised that something was happening. And one of the midwives I was working with kindly confirmed that this was the case. So I had to ring the consultant on and say, I'm sorry, but I'm in labour and there's a forceps and a caesarean that need to be done. And he was not terribly happy to receive this news. But he said, look, just do the forceps, he said. I don't think he said can. He said, just do the forceps and I'll come and do the caesar. (laughs) So that was what happened. I did the forceps and he came and did the caesar, I think, and I went off to the other hospital. And had a and baby, gave birth to my son. Yeah, He's a great, great baby. Did yeah. you always want a big family? Uh, I'm not sure that I did all that much long-term planning. Um, really, uh, I'm delighted. My children are wonderful. <laughs> uh, yes, every one of them is is fantastic. So, I'm very, very happy that I have them.
1: What brought you and your family up to North Queensland?
0: It was the feeling that we wanted to work. Uh, not in a, in a big city, but in a perhaps a more disadvantaged place, a wilder place, a more challenging place, a frontier. We had worked twice. We did two stints in Papua New Guinea as interns and then as senior registrars. And uh, we really hoped to get back to something like that. And uh, I began doing locums in Far North Queensland, based in Cairns, with outreach to many communities on the Cape, Cape York, and uh, in the Torres Strait, And I realised that I wanted to actually move up here. So I moved up here in 1999.
1: You'd been an activist for contraceptive reform in Ireland, as, as we've discussed in the 1960s and 70s. What battles were left to fight in Australia in the 2000s?
0: There was a great need for abortion law reform. I understood this a bit when I was working in Sydney. Abortion, surgical abortion was available to Sydney women even though the laws were quite strict. They'd been relaxed a bit with various cases and uh, it was possible to find a surgical abortion in Sydney then. Uh, There was no medical abortion. I didn't immediately see that as a great problem. I knew about Senator Harrodine having made a deal with John Howard to ban the import and use of ru six, Mifepristone, in Australia in 1996. i didn't find it a, uh, a huge barrier in Sydney, but when I moved to far north Queensland, I realised that it was very difficult for women, particularly in regional Queensland, to access abortion and that that had to be improved and also that the medical abortion, the drug for medical abortion, Mifepristone, we needed to have it in Australia. By then it was available in many countries overseas It was known to be safe and effective, but it was not available in Australia, and Australian women didn't know about it.
1: And why did you want to be able to offer it, that
0: abortion drug, as it was known, IU486,
1: to your patients?
0: Because it is possible to use it in the woman's home up to nine weeks of pregnancy or so, and the woman has control of the situation. And most women who make the decision for abortion when they discover that they have an unintended pregnancy make the decision before 9 weeks and the drug is safe it can be used in any situation where a woman has some kind of access to emergency care and some support while she's going through the process and is able to understand what the process is and to be sure that she wants to go through it so it is much more accessible and cheaper and I think it's less risky than having a surgical abortion with an anaesthetic. I just felt there had to be this choice for Australian women. So what did you do about it? Well, I started working along reasonable channels of writing to the government, writing to my college and so on. I wrote an article for the Medical Journal of Australia, which was published in 2005, October of 2005. And I immediately was found myself being contacted by quite a number of women politicians in the federal parliament, the Commonwealth Parliament, who were keen to be able to bring the drug into Australia to to change the law, to overturn the Haradine Amendment. And very quickly I became part of a campaign. There were a lot of other people involved, children by choice in Brisbane, politicians in other states, GetUp came on board, quite a lot of the medical profession, the AMA, the federal AMA. Uh, And there was a a sudden, really cross-country campaign from October 2005 through till February of 2006 when four women senators, cross-party, brought a private member's bill to the parliament and it passed the Senate first and then the following week it passed the House of Representatives, which was wonderful, except that no drug company at that point was prepared to stick their necks out and bring the drug into Australia. So what I did with my colleague here in Cairns, Dr Mike Caret, who is a, now he's retired, he's a gynecologist, uh, he had been providing surgical abortions in Cairns, but he could only do it in the private system, so the access was limited for many women. We were able to import the drug. It was a complicated process involving um, a long application to the therapeutic goods administration the tga but we went through that process we didn't really think that we were going to get the permission but in fact we did get it quite quickly we obviously had our supporters in the tga and we imported some from new zealand where it was available and we began to use it in cans with some trepidation because we were getting a lot of media attention and we didn't want it to go wrong.
1: What kind of responses did you get from from the media and, I guess, the community more
0: more broadly? From the media, very, very positive. From um, the health minister, who was Tony Abbott, very, very negative. Uh, and they would have been very happy if something had gone wrong. Fortunately, it didn't. And uh, over the next two years, two or three other gynaecologists sought the same TGA permission and eventually got it. And then the Māori-Stopes organisation put in an application and they got permission to use mifepristone and they were able to use it much more widely and to publish studies with 13,000, 14,000 women. After that, there was no going back. It was obviously safe, effective and acceptable to Australian women.
1: How did the first autopsy you ever witnessed in Dublin affect the way you think about abortion and and its availability for women?
0: Very much, very much. This was an abortion case, but it was never said during the autopsy. This was a young woman who came from the country, probably not a lot of education. She hadn't been in Dublin very long, and she had become sick in the boarding house where she was staying. And it was quite a number of days before uh, anybody noticed this and even longer before she was brought to the hospital. And by then she had uh, septicemia, she had pneumonia, and she, although she was given antibiotics, she died. And the autopsy was performed. It was the first aut- autopsy I had seen. The lungs were filled with pus and obviously she had had pneumonia, but so was the abdominal cavity and her uterus had been torn and was very infected. And the pathologist pointed this out, and he said, uh, there were about six students, he said, well, it's obvious where it came from, but it was the pneumonia that killed her, and that's what I'll be putting on the death certificate. And we were mystified by this, but the pathology assistant later said, look, she tried to end the pregnancy uh, herself or somebody did for her, but if that was put on the death certificate, the priest in her home town would see that and he wouldn't bury her in the churchyard and she would be shamed and her family would be shamed. And so that's not going to happen. Uh, so both both things, the fact that this woman had died from doing this and the fact that it was so, so stigmatized made a huge impression on me. Are you surprised, Caroline, by
1: how quickly things can change. You've you've lived long enough to be able to look back and and go from seeing that autopsy of that young woman who couldn't even be acknowledged on the death certificate that she had died as a result of an infection from a badly performed abortion to the state where abortion is legal in Ireland and legal
0: in Australia. Does it kind of make your head spin? It does. Yes. And before it happens, you just think, oh, this is never. This is never going to happen. We just keep on writing to politicians. We keep on protesting. We keep on making posters and marching down the street, writing again and marching again. But eventually things do change for the better, I think. How did a woman called Dima come into your life? Dima came to Cairns from Nauru. She had been on Nauru for four and a half years. Dima was born in Kuwait. She is Palestinian though, so she was stateless and her parents were stateless and her husband was stateless. He was born in Iraq and Dima met him through an online marriage service, an Arab online marriage service. She was smuggled across the border between Kuwait and Iraq and she married Hani and she lived in Baghdad and their lives were very difficult as non-Iraqi citizens uh, in a war zone. And so they left and they tried to come to Australia. They were on a boat. They arrived on Christmas Island, just as Julia Gillard announced that further boat arrivals would never be settled in Australia. So they were conveyed from Christmas Island to Nauru. Dima became pregnant with her first full-term pregnancy. And towards the end of the pregnancy, there were some complications. And I had been looking after refugee women Uh, and asylum figure women for for many years and writing reports uh, for various pro bono lawyers and human rights organisations in Australia. And I was asked about Dima's situation and my recommendation was that Dima should be brought to Australia to have her baby. She was brought uh, to Australia and I had expected that she would go to Brisbane or Sydney, but she came to Cairns. She had been told that her husband, Hannie, would come with her until the moment when they put her onto the plane and told Hanni he was staying in Nauru. So she arrived in Australia, a place where she'd never been, a town she had never heard of, having her first baby, knowing there were some complications. I never acted as her obstetrician, but she asked me to be her support person. And I said, of course, I would. So Hanny was on Nauru. It was possible to make phone calls Um, I could do that for her. She wasn't allowed to use a phone like that. Nobody was going to tell her the sex of the baby until she could see and we would get Hanny on the other end of the line. And she had a look and she said in Arabic to her husband, it's a little boy. (laughs) Uh, And now he's a bigger boy. (laughs) This was 2017. I think that The Australian Border Force had thought they were just going to bring her to Cairns and take her straight back to Nauru. But we have a quite uh, active refugee support group here and there were lots of lawyers acting on her behalf. So she spent a year in Cairns and then for unfathomable reasons she was moved to North Adelaide for another year. Hanny, meanwhile, stayed on Nauru and we were pushing and pushing for him to be able to come and eventually he was allowed to come. They knew that they were never going to be allowed to settle in Australia. I had by then discovered the Canadian private sponsorship program for refugees. They, both Hanni and Dima had been recognised fully by the UN as refugees. And so the Canadian program requires, again, a lot of paperwork and some funds have to be raised and there have to be sponsors in Canada. My eldest son lives in Canada and uh, has become a Canadian citizen, so he became very involved in finding the support for Hanny and Dima in Canada. And although it took us 18 months, I can tell you that Dima and Hanni and Mohammed, now aged four and a half, are living in Toronto and really settling into Canadian life. <laughs> uh, and I stay very much in touch with Dima. I talk to her every week.
1: I wonder, Caroline... What do you think made you suited to being such a trailblazer, which you have been as a single mum in Ireland, as a professor of obstetrics, as an abortion reform advocate? Where does that fire or that willingness to just be ahead of the pack, where does that come from?
0: I think my parents were, my parents believed very strongly in education. They also believed, because I grew up in the 50s in Sydney, they had lived through the 30s, the Depression in Australia, and they'd lived through the Second World War, I was brought up feeling that I was fortunate to be where I was and to be educated, uh, that I should be giving back to the community I lived in and also that I should be curious about things. I don't know how much discussion specifically there ever was. There were just these ideas that I was brought up with. I feel, too, that the standards that you walk past if something is not satisfactory in the community you're living in, that becomes the standard you accept and I'm not prepared to accept things. Thank you so much for
1: for telling your story on Conversations.
0: Oh, thank you very much for listening, Sarah.
1: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. a heist of grand proportions and a story straight out of a Hollywood blockbuster. Millions of dollars of diamonds smuggled out of the remote Kimberley in Western Australia, then around the world. But the diamonds weren't lost to the 80s when this heist happened. The stolen gems are back in circulation. On Pink Diamond Heist, how did no one notice diamonds were being smuggled out of the world's most secure mine? Who were the culprits behind this multi-million dollar heist? And where are the stolen diamonds now? Find out right now on Pink Diamond Heist
0: on the ABC Listen app.